Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Wine Show. I'm Hannah Homari, editor at Sustainable Wine, which is the online magazine of the SWR, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Toby Webb, founder of the SWR, and Tom Outram, operations and partnerships manager. Hi, Tom. Hi, Toby. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Nice to be with you as always. So you're both currently in Milan at the Semi-Wine Technology Exhibition. How's that been going? Really well, thanks, Hannah. We'll talk a bit more about it later, but we've run two conference sessions with various members meeting delegates from the exhibition and conference and talking about the work of the roundtable and learning more about wine technology and its role in sustainability. Yes, it's been a fascinating trip. I certainly look forward to hearing more about that a bit later. Now I want to introduce everyone to our guest speaker who's joining us on the show today, Dom DeVille. He's the Director of Sustainability and Social Impact at the Wine Society. So Dom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hannah. Good to be here. As usual, we'll start with a brief look at the latest news and trends in the sustainable wine industry and have some updates on the SWR. And then we'll hear from Dom on what the Wine Society has been up to recently and their involvement in the roundtable. On the news front, we saw November kick off with a couple of days of unexpected frost in Argentina, leading Mendoza to declare an agricultural state of emergency. Temperatures dropped to around minus 4.5 Celsius in some parts of the region, causing significant damage to around 10,000 hectares of vineyards. According to regional authorities, between 50 and 75% of Mendoza vineyards have been impacted by this frost, and some producers are actually reporting total losses. I've also seen quite a few headlines related to biodiversity in the vineyard. In Bordeaux, wineries have been researching the impact of bees and bats on biodiversity for over a decade now, and studies have demonstrated the importance of both in terms of biodiversity and also as organic pest control. I also came across the use of worms in the vineyard to process wastewater without the use of chemicals. Ehlers Estate in Napa Valley is installing a new water treatment system that uses vermifiltration or worm-based biofiltration to produce water clean enough to irrigate the vineyards and landscaping. And I found that fascinating. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely hadn't heard about this before. Finally, I'm continuing to see a lot of commentary around alternative packaging and the pressures to move away from the glass bottle. As we all know, the manufacturing and transportation of glass accounts for the largest proportion of wine's carbon footprint. And we can see many wineries experimenting with non-glass formats such as bag in boxes, pouches, cans, and so on. But getting people to buy wine in alternative packaging isn't necessarily as straightforward. We can certainly see progress in some markets. So, for example, in the Nordics, where alternative formats are definitely more culturally acceptable, but as we know, packaging perceptions are very hard to shift. I recently read an interesting quote from Robert Joseph in a recent article of his in Wine Business International. He made the point that if you don't give your customers what they want, you haven't got a sustainable business. And in that case, there is little point in talking about sustainable packaging. Winemakers are really caught between needing to drive the shift to more sustainable packaging, but also ultimately they need to sell their wine. Dom, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. What is the Wine Society doing around packaging? Well, quite a lot, but it's probably fair to say we're also realising we're just scratching the surface with this and there's so much more we need to do and probably faster as well. So over the last few years, we've gradually been reducing glass bottle weight where we can. Um, we've got around 75 or so own label wines and we've now said that all need to be below 450 grams for the glass bottle, which they nearly all are now, and ideally around 400 
to 420 range. I think we're down to about 433 grams on average. I mentioned that because we're, we're making progress, but we're also realising there's so much more to do. As you've just referred to, we've completed our full scope one, two and three carbon footprint, and we found that packaging's 41%. It won't be a big surprise. Many people know this kind of figure already. But when you see it in black and white, it really changes mindsets. And it has done for us internally. So I think the big change for us is we've realised the importance of having a proper packaging strategy that's focused on three things, optimising our current packaging. So that's about reducing weight. We use about 6,000 tonnes of glass, seven, 800 tonnes of cardboard each year. We need to put in place targets to get those weights down. We're hoping to draw on the research that the Sustainable Wine Roundtable are doing on this so that we can start to set maximum targets or maximum weights on our glass bottles on a sliding scale over the next few years. And then introduce those and really hope that others in the industry start to follow suit. So we're all working to similar goals. And then the second area around packaging for us is the alternative packaging. Again, as you just mentioned, so we're launching a trial next year on that. We've just completed a piece of research that looked at the better alternative packaging formats. So we're going to put six of our most popular wines which includes fine wine, into bag and box and the plastic recycled PET bottle. We're going to launch those next year with a trial. We're also expanding our can range as well, trying to push some of our members into those alternative formats. And then the third aspect of this packaging strategy is about bulk shipping. I mean, it's difficult for us because we have such a broad range of wines and we sell so many in small quantities So bulk doesn't always work environmentally and economically, but I think there's more we can do on this. It's another area we're going to be looking into. It's a big thing. We know we need to put more efforts on it. I look forward to following the Wine Society's progress in this space, especially with the trial of the alternative formats you said you'll be launching next year. Now, Tom, let's turn to you. We've recently introduced some new members to the roundtable and we have a lot of activity going on. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's been great. We've had some really good engagement over the past couple of months. In response to that, we've been joined by a number of very progressive organisations, including Raffini, who are a leading sparkling producer in England, Wine and Spirit Trade Association, and Gonzales Bias. They're one of the leading wine and sherry producers in Spain. We're looking forward to working with them over the coming months. And in terms of projects, as Don mentioned, we have our SWR retailers group. They're currently looking at bottle weight as an issue. My colleague, Dr. Peter Stanbury, has just completed the initial assessment and analysis of all the data and work that's been carried out by our members. And now we'll be looking to broaden the scope of that work in the next stage. In terms of other groups, we have a Vineyard Inputs group, which is being launched next week. Some of the members involved include Cloudy Bay, Treasury Wine Estates, Saint-Michel Wine Estates and Geisenheim University. That's looking to create a sort of evidence-backed joint position in relation to the selection and use of inputs in the vineyards. So that's going to be a complicated, but very interesting area, which we look forward to sharing more updates on in the coming months. Now, Dom, touching upon your work in relation to scope three emissions, what have been the challenges of calculating those? As I mentioned, we've just 
completed our scope one, two and three carbon footprint calculation. We're going to share those results in the next couple of months, actually, along with our reduction targets and action plan, because I think it's really important to show transparency around it. It's partly so our members can keep an eye on our progress, but also partly because we hope it will help and encourage others to do the same. Um, It's a really complicated thing to do footprinting, um, especially scope three. So the more that we can all see how others have gone about it, I think the better we'll all get at doing it ourselves. But in terms of the challenges, the biggest one we found is around getting accurate and complete data. This won't be new to many. The basic methodology of carbon footprinting is you take your activity data, whether that's litres of fuel consumed or kilowatt hours of electricity consumed or kilograms of material used. You multiply that by an established emissions factor and then you get the amount of carbon that that activity is produced. It's much more complicated than that, but in a nutshell, for the activity data, we used that actual data wherever we possibly could. For the things that we know, things like tons of glass we've used, where our wines have been transported from and which shipping routes and how many miles it travelled, whether the wine was delivered from our warehouse to our members' doors by DHL or in our own vans. We know that. And so we're able to use actual data. But for a lot of areas in our supply chain, we just don't have that kind of primary data because our suppliers aren't yet collecting it. Um, For example, with vineyards and wineries, the data is just not there on things like fertilizer use or tractor fuel use or water consumption or waste management. Just many don't record it. So whilst we did manage to get actual data from some, which we've extrapolated out for a lot of activities, we also had to use a lot of industry averages to come up with the most accurate figures we could So it's not perfect. It's not 100% accurate, especially when you've got 800 or so suppliers like we do. But it's the best we're able to get at the moment. It's still comprehensive. It still gives us a really clear picture of where our emissions hotspots are and what's causing those emissions and why. So it's really invaluable for informing our plans for how we're going to tackle them. But I just think in general, as a sector, we just need to get better at recording this kind of data and sharing it with each other so we can make smart decisions on how to go about tackling emissions. That probably is the biggest challenge, Tom. That's been a recurring theme in the discussions we've had at Semi this week is the importance of data and the need for more of it. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will know about carbon offsetting. There's a fairly new concept, or at least I think to wine, the concept of carbon insetting. Dom, can you tell us a bit more about that and why the Wine Society is exploring this as a potential solution? I think it's vital to reduce emissions and that should be business's priority. I'm also a firm believer that whilst we're doing that, we should also be contributing to the wider fight against climate change in whatever ways we can. And for us at the Wine Society, this is looking at the potential of vineyards to sequester more carbon whether that's through better soil health or more biodiversity or better practices and so on. We've just made the decision that rather than selecting an offsetting scheme sort of off the shelf from the likes of gold standard and paying into that to get certified carbon neutral, um, which is nothing wrong with that. And that money goes to helping tackle climate change in various different ways. But rather than do that, we would do this idea of insetting. 
So this means working out how much we would have to spend to offset our annual emissions and then investing that money each year in one or more nature-based projects in our supply chain. I don't yet know what those projects would be, but there'll be things that can sequester carbon, increase biodiversity and soil health, and ideally also help the vineyard become more resilient to climate change. So what we'd then do is monitor, record what we're doing, share any lessons around what's working, what doesn't work, any challenges and opportunities. The idea really is not just to invest in a project, it's really about investing in something and then learning things that are beneficial to the sector as a whole. What's the sequestration potential of vineyards or different kinds of vineyards? What kinds of biodiversity, soil health projects can help in the fight against climate change or the most promising initiatives to help vineyards better cope with the effects of climate change? So this is all just about investing in your own supply chain to learn something that we can all use. Obviously, it's still really theoretical at the moment. Quite honestly, we've got no idea how to go about it or who to work with or how to measure the impact. So we're giving ourselves time in 2023 to do this. We're going to do a bunch of work and research on this next year and then go from there. We'd obviously love to be able to support you with the roundtable and our members. It sounds like you know, the collaborative approach is necessary to make this a viable option. Definitely. I think it's new. I think it's important. It's complicated. And I think the more we can bring different brains and different heads and different ideas into this, the better. I said multiple times and the risk of repeating myself. I think the point of this is to really learn things that can be shared more broadly and for us, particularly amongst our 800 or so suppliers. So social forms part of your role. And what does that mean for the wine society? And what are the sort of key issues that you're looking at as a company? Yeah, so this is another big focus area for us. And we're increasingly hearing from our members that they want to buy more ethically. They're not just interested in the environment, they're interested in people as well. But they expect us as the retailer to make this easy for them. And also, I think there's just generally a movement or a trend in the last five years or more. It's no longer good enough for retailers to say that they're not responsible for any abuses or issues that happens in their supply chain. We now have a duty of care to ensure that we're doing everything reasonably possible to ensure that people right through the supply chain have been treated properly, paid a fair wage or price. And this isn't just about the wine and food we sell, but all the goods and services we use to run the business. IT services and equipment, temporary labour in our warehouse in Stevenage, food in our canteen, printer toner, cardboard, where that comes from gardening services, whatever it might be. And I think that this social side of wine supply chains is a really underserved issue, whether that's human rights, labour conditions, exploitation and discrimination, and so on. It's going to take some time and effort to get right, and we're going to need to bring others along with us, and we're going to have to take a collaborative approach. But to help get us started and maybe bring some ideas to the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, We're currently working with some external consultants to help think through this um, because it's really complex. And things that we're focused on over the next year are designing a new social and environmental code of conduct for suppliers. So this would set out our approach to social sustainability or responsible sourcing. 
and also the requirements that we have got of our suppliers. So we'll be rolling that out over the course of 2023. Second area is developing our approach to assessing risk. So how are we going to identify and tackle the biggest human rights and labour issues in our supply chain? The Code of Conduct is a good start, but it's more of a framework, sets the direction of travel. How do we then do due diligence in the supply chain, ensure this is being adhered to and continuous improvements are being made? So we need to identify the most material risks. Is that labour conditions in the vineyard, for example? Which suppliers are most at risk of having or experiencing those issues? And then how do we work with them to improve? And this kind of risk-based approach is something that has become quite common in other sectors and categories. And I think wine is lagging behind a bit. And I think the third area is working with the Sustainable Wine Roundtable to find a sensible approach to sustainability certifications, particularly on the social side. Increasingly, our members want to know which wines we sell are more sustainable. As I mentioned earlier, third-party certifications are a good way to signpost this. Many are confusing. There's a lot of them. Many cover environmental issues well, but less so on the social side. And so I think we'd be really keen to find a way through this so that next year we can say to our members that if a producer has got one or more of this group of certifications, we're pretty sure they're doing well or heading in the right direction on environmental and social issues. And also particularly to next year push standard holders a bit more to improve the social aspects of their certifications. Those are the kind of the three big areas that we're focusing on at the moment. That's a great summary and you know really impressive work. And it was certainly a finding that we found in this initial benchmarking work that my colleague Dr. Peter Stanbury carried out was the lack of attention that social issues has had historically within these standards. Collectively with the standards and with our members, we're looking forward to moving that agenda forward. Dom, that's been a great summary. I'm going to hand back to Hannah. Thank you so much for those insights. And we're looking forward to working with you as we move forward. Thanks, Tom. Now, Toby, you've been busy recording some podcasts and you recently had a great conversation with Miguel Torres. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, Miguel's a bit of a regular on our conferences and podcasts, partly because he's got a lot to say and partly because he deserves to be, given the work that Torres has done leading the way on sustainability innovation. We had a very interesting conversation about packaging, particularly around his views about bag in box and the opportunity to also explore recyclable wine bottles. Effectively, a deposit return scheme. He pointed to an example, I think it's in Quebec on the podcast, where people can take their wine bottles back and the wine bottle doesn't need to be melted down, therefore avoiding a lot of recurring carbon emissions from recycling. And there is form for this idea. There are extended producer responsibility schemes operating in parts of the world, Belgium, Germany, parts of the Netherlands, parts of Western Canada, are known for having some effective extended producer responsibility schemes that allow for effective collection and reuse of materials at a minimal environmental footprint. So Miguel's trying to float that idea in defense of glass, which I think is really interesting because we need to have that debate. I see packaging as a bit like renewable energy. We need all the tools in the toolbox. There's no silver bullet. It's going to be the old English phrase of horses for courses, but gets us there. Of course, we need to change the structure we have at the moment, but it's always worth hearing Miguel Torres's views. So yeah, that was a fascinating podcast and that's available on the Sustainable Wine podcast channel. So make sure you go listen to that. Now, before we wrap this up, Tom and Toby, I'd love to hear a little bit more about SEMI and the discussions that have been taking place. Do you have any key highlights or takeaways? 
the good news is that the Simi folks are very high tech and they streamed us live. Those recordings are on YouTube right now. So we can put them in the show notes, put them in the next newsletter. But we did two discussions, one which I chaired on the use of technology in driving sustainability. And we had some very interesting perspectives. We had Dom's colleague, Simon Mason, making the case for technology use and sustainability from a retail point of view. We talked about QR codes and augmented reality videos telling the real story of sustainability from a farmer producer point of view. We talked about data with Erica Loffling from Vintage Wine Estates and how data is absolutely essential. And you can't have 15 wineries feeding into four different data systems. It's a nightmare if you do that. So how do we fix that? That was really interesting. We heard from uh, Bruno Le Breton, who manages BLB Vignoble in the south of France, about how they're using technology in the work that they do, particularly around areas related to climate change and trade-offs, which is really interesting. You have to study what works versus the unintended consequences of implementing new systems. And then we had a great conversation with Will Drayton from Treasury Wine Estates about a wide variety of issues, particularly related to their use of technology and looking at viticulture and what it can do. The takeaway is we're only just getting started. To echo Dom's points earlier about the Wine Society's journey, we're just getting started in understanding what technology can do to mitigate and adapt around climate change and to tackle other issues. But there's some really interesting stories coming out there. And then secondly, Dr. Peter Stanbury, the video of his session is also available, which we'll post he chaired a session with System Balajet and some of our other members about the Global Reference Standard. We put ourselves through the ringer a bit. We had some pretty difficult questions asked by some of our founding members to ourselves about how we take this forward. Stefano Stefanucci from Equalitas posed some very interesting questions, and we're very happy to admit we don't know all the answers yet. The role of audits in a Global Reference Standard, what does that look like? That's to be discussed. But I think what Peter's takeaway from the session would be, if I can speak on his behalf, would be that we're making great progress. We've got real alignment on our objectives and we are developing the process iteratively as we go through the journey. So we call on all wine businesses to sign up to the roundtable, join us in the journey on the Global Reference Standard and make your views known so that we can make it work for everyone. Thanks, Toby. Yes, it certainly sounds like some really great discussions have taken place, and it must have also been great to be able to have these face-to-face with everyone. That's it for this month's episode. Thank you, Toby and Tom and Dom. Thank you so much again for coming on the show today. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. We'll be back next month. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments or you want to get involved in the roundtable, please do email me at hannah at sustainablewine.co.uk. We'll see you next month. 